All right, so we're going to be studying in uh, the book of Revelation for uh, those of you who are at home uh, and for those who are here, we need to introduce a few things. Uh, this book is not like most books. Uh, you probably know that. So the introduction is going to take up a little bit longer uh, than, than most. We're going to take up a day with our introductory material. Most books, you know, you're studying uh, the book of Ephesians. You can get through the who wrote it, where was he, and let's go and uh in about 30 seconds so uh this book uh we have to kind of explain why because it's not one of those types of books where you just read it and understand it so we, we're going to explain the th there's multiple interpretations of the book we're going to explain why we're picking the the type of theory or whatever that we're working from to try to get what it is so uh, we don't have certainly the time to go here's 800 views on the book and uh and Okay, so um, so we're just going to narrow it down to one. For those of you who are at home, we are using the PowerPoint because there's a little bit more uh, depth of, of content that we're going in. So uh, this might be a benefit to you at home. I will be picture in picture, so I'll be a little bit smaller. But, uh, but the slides are going to be structured so that you should be able to still see the all the material. It shouldn't crop out anything, uh, hopefully. If it does, please leave us a note, and I will try to uh, edit that for next week. Uh, so <clears throat> that being said, uh, why study Revelation? The reason we are going to study Revelation um, is because I, I, I felt like, um, at the, the point in time in which we are and the things happening in the world around us, um, there's a lot of people capitalizing on that and, and on our current events to, to try to make Revelation about these events. I don't, I, I think, uh, if they might be connected, but there's a lot of things certainly being stated that I, I believe are incorrect, and I think it's important to set the record straight. A lot of the things that people have stated, I think, have contributed to more fear than than what the book is intended to do, which is to uh, to kind of bring us a little bit more comfort and confidence in God. And and so if if your outcome is not happening uh, the way God wants it to, then it's it's a good chance that your input <laughs> is incorrect. Uh, so we're going to get right into uh, the book. Uh, so there are three views of who knows what the three views of Revelation are. Basic. So we've we've talked about premillennialism. Yeah. Anybody familiar? I, I'm not sure if they're official. Okay. Official names, but I know that there's some folks that that view it as um, a teaching to the current to the to the church at the time. Okay. Uh, there's some folks that view it as prophetic. Okay. And and, and and some and there's and there's one that's sort of a hybrid. Okay. So so that's that's kind of um, yeah right okay that's pretty good description. Uh, the first one is premillennialism, uh, and this is kind of what you're talking about where it's prophetic, but not just prophetic, but long-term prophetic. Um, and the the next if uh, they connect. Revelation uh, with Matthew chapter 24, um, and there, there's this partial rapture, uh, one will be taken, one will be left, and all that, and they, they kind of connect these two ideas, um, and, uh, and then there's going to be the kingdom on earth for a thousand years, and peace, and, and then apparently God decides that that's, you know, okay, a thousand years is enough, you've had too much good stuff, and now we're going to, I'm going to go back, then Satan's going to come, and, and there's this back and forth. Um, we're going to look at some of the flaws. So uh, the first flaw is that there is an incorrect association with Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. It says, he answered them. You see all of these, do you not? Um, 
Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that's Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in Matthew chapter 24. Um, and in fact, the next verse after this, the disciples say, well, what are the signs of this? When's this going to happen? And while you're answering this question, when is the end of the world going to be? And so in Matthew 24, he answers the first question. Then at the end of the chapter and then into Matthew 25, he answers the second question, which is, he says, I'm not going to tell you when the end of the world is, um, but here's some signs Matthew 24 goes through and he says, these are some of the signs when, uh, when this particular statement that I've just made is going to happen. And that is the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not about the book of Revelation. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. How does this verse uh, we've talked about how when you mess something up, a lot of times you're going to really mess something up you did not intend to, right? Uh, things have repercussions when, when we start incorrectly interpreting things. And I want you to uh, think how this verse, uh, Jesus says, and this is the conclusion of this uh, in, in chapter 24, says this generation, these things are going to happen within one generation. I truly say this to you. How does this affect this idea of, or I should say, how does the idea of premillennialism affect this statement? What's, what, what is now wrong? Well, it's a, this generation. Okay. So depending on what you mean by this generation. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so as Jesus is saying this, next, this affects Christ's omnipotence. We're making some, some dramatic statements. Jesus is, this is going to happen within a generation. And if, you, if, if this didn't happen, if Matthew 24 is about the end of the world, because it's connected to Revelation and premillennialism, then, uh, then Christ was wrong. And therefore, we have affected Christ's omnipotence. Now, the people who came up with this idea didn't realize that, probably. But this is a significant implication. Next, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were not were of this world, my servants would have been fighting so that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So we now affect yet another thing. If premillennialism is true, what do we affect? Something very important. Something that violates this statement. What is premillennialism centered around? This idea of the thousand years that is centered on uh, the kingdom, right? And a kingdom on earth. What we've affected is Christ's work. Christ, how many times does Christ have to say, listen, I'm not here to be a politician. I didn't come here to rescue your policy, right? They tried to make him a king and he slipped out. Yes, Terry. The word generation, I guess I've always thought of it that as a a broad term around humankind. Okay, so so uh, it has it has two uses. It has two uses. The word generation, um, uh, and uh, one is uh, that um, it can refer to a generation of people like the Jews, or it can refer to a generation of people living at that time. Okay. Uh, those are the two uses. It does, it's never used broadly of, of humankind. 
Um, but it's talking about a generation, like the word geneo means to begin, to begin from something. Uh, and uh, so there are numerous references where Jesus references, there are people standing here who will not taste death until, so they see the kingdom of power. So, so those words were probably in context using that definition of, uh, of what he's talking about, people living at that point in time. Uh, so, yeah. You know, there's another point that I, I just noticed that might reinforce uh, the point where David said, "You see all these stones? Yes. Around you, not not one is going to be left on the other." Well, he was talking about that because I thought to myself, he must have been talking about his body, right? Because if you go, but according to you know, mm-hmm. the tour, the tour guides in, yeah. in Jerusalem, that like the Via Dolorosa, yeah. That, you know, that is actually, uh, you know, a lot of those buildings and stuff like that were around in the time of Christ, supposedly. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Every stone had been torn down. Yeah. The way that was taken literally, then he would be wrong. Yeah. So I, I think it's a little bit metaphorical, uh, and, and I don't know what he was specifically talking about. And I know that the Via Della Rosa is, those are, a lot of those paths of Jesus are kind of, fictitious um in terms of they were they came up it was constantine's mother who came up with those 300 years later yeah there, a lot of like the tomb of the cross and all this stuff they, they don't they don't have any idea where those things were um i don't want to belabor that too much but but he's clearly referencing the destruction of jerusalem which regardless of hap- happened in that generation it's definitely still not a future thing right the dome of the rock mosque is built on top of the temple site so so we know that it's not still from our perspective a future event uh and it denies our context uh and and so we kind of just review with this there are three things in this passage that illustrate that that premillennialism can't possibly be true the first one uh he says he's made us to be kingdom and priests. So it's not a location. The kingdom is not a location. It is an us. We are the kingdom. Uh, and, and by the way, this is the this is Revelation 1 now. So premillennialism, which is a, a method of interpretation of the book of Revelation, is denying the very first opening verses of Revelation chapter 1 verse uh, of chapter 1. Uh, next the next uh, one, he says, he has made us. So when John writes this, this whatever is happening is a past event and not a future event. When John writes, whatever's been going on has, has happened, right, uh, in, in terms of the kingdom, in terms of, uh, you know. So uh, the last one, he says, every eye will see him. The idea of the rapture is something that's built on uh, an interpretation of Matthew 24 that says one will be taken, one will be left, right? Uh, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, right? Or this plane or whatever. Uh, and that's this, this super secret rapture thing that's going to be happening. But John says, no, every eye will see him. But not just every eye. He says, not just a special group of Christians, but, but every eye, even those who pierced him. Even Christ's enemies are going to see him. So this is not a super secret thing that's going to be happening. It's not, it's going to be simultaneous. I don't know how God's going to do that with a spherical thing that we have, but every eye is going to see him. We're going to talk about another view called preterism. Uh, Preterism is um, 
it's kind of actually similar. By the way, uh, the word preterism is a word which has only been around for 150 years. If you look it up, it only has one definition, and that is to refer to this view of revelation. It does, it's not a word like premillennialism. I can at least figure out what the idea is because there's pre, before, and millennium. Okay, I kind of understand that. There's something about before a millennium. Preterism is just a made-up word. Uh, and the overview is that revelation is fulfilled in the events that culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem. I want to, uh, it's a, a little bit of a, a, a tail wagging the dog kind of a theory, and I want to get to how it came about. The preterist um, it, it bases his interpretation based on one verse, in, in fact, one word in one verse of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Okay, so they say, this thing has to happen soon, right? That's soon. Uh, so 2,000 years is not soon. So we think that this must be in John's time, that all of this stuff has to go on. So the, the, the thing that they start doing is looking for events around this time frame that would justify an entire book being written or, or you know some some series of events that would justify an entire book and really i mean at least something involving the church yeah the fall of jerusalem is pretty big right and so they settle on the fall of jerusalem they actually do something similar to premillennialists only the opposite where premillennialists take the uh matthew 24 and bring it forward in time as prophecy and and join it to the book of revelation what the preterist does is he says uh, we're pretty sure we understand what matthew 24 is about what we're going to do is we're going to take the book of revelation and marry them up back here right so they both do a similar thing i want to look at the flaws of this theory i remember when we talked in job about how job's friends were wrong and job was wrong but they were wrong in different ways Job's friends were wrong, probably in ways that were, they were more wrong than Job, right? But the way Job was wrong, you know, at the end, Christ, or God comes to Job and he, he's, and he says, you're going to have to sacrifice for these guys, right? Uh, they're just really wrong. They haven't said anything right about me. And yet Job, God says to Job, he's like, you're wrong. You've added rebellion to your sin. In other words, the, the types of things that, that you said about me, it wasn't just that, I mean, you might have been less wrong, but they had more serious impact than, than, than what they did. So, so God spends most of his end of his book really correcting Job because Job had a lot of heart issues that he needed to fix. And I think that's the difference between premillennialism and preterism is that I think preterism makes more mistakes but I don't see the same type of implications where premillennialism is affecting Christ's omnipotence and it's, it's affecting the nature of his work as, as being spiritual instead of physical. I, I don't see those types of implications in preterism, but it, it is flawed. And I want to look at how, and this is a word I only recently found out that I was mispronouncing for my entire adult life. Uh, so uh, thanks to spell check, but there's historicity. Um, who knows what historicity is? or can guess. Okay, uh, historical accuracy. Um, it's it's kind of like the telephone game, 
right? You start, you play the telephone game, it starts out and, and somewhere along the line, it's no longer what was original, right? Uh, there's this, what's going on? Uh, where did we get off? So for example, uh, at a council uh, somewhere, uh, they determined uh, based on Augustine's work, the city of God in year 400, that it was okay to start calling Mary the mother of God. That only goes back to the year 400. So it doesn't have a lot of historicity. It doesn't, it doesn't go back close to the apostles. You're talking about some, so that view of Mary, it, it doesn't really support itself. It, it doesn't have historicity, right? Uh, it's like the telephone game. Somewhere doctrine got changed. And we could maybe go back, where did this start to happen, right? So I want to talk about the historicity of, um, of preterism. It dates to this book in 1614. That's as far back as you can trace preterism. So we have to ask ourselves, if that's as far back as we can go, we have to wonder why. Uh, just for a, a kind of a reference point, it is three years younger than the King James Bible, which is published in 1611. That's not old for a viewpoint. Uh, so we need to ask why, right? Why wouldn't this be any older than this? And we're going to find our reason in its motive, okay? And it dates to Louis de Alcazar, who was a Jesuit priest. And that's interesting. Why would a Jesuit priest come up with an idea of preterism? Because it's actually popular in Churches of Christ. This is really where you'll find preterism. There are some Protestant churches, um, and there are some Churches of Christ, mainly like around Tennessee and kind of in the South, that you'll find this. I'm going to read from a book. I got this uh, recently. Uh, it's Dante's Inferno. Okay. Um, actually, this is the Divine Comedy. It's three books. And uh, he writes in 1300, okay? And we have to understand a little bit of what this book is about. It's poetry. It's, it's kind of obtuse. Um, so I'm not going to read a ton of it. <laughs> so it's really hard. It's intellectual poetry, and it's really hard. I, I like, have to read it like five times and then like check out, what did he just say? Because I don't understand it. Um, so there is an easy section in here. And the reason I'm reading it is simply so we can get a flavor for what is happening prior to when Louis de Alcazar writes. Um, preterism wasn't around. There were two views. Those are premillennialism, which is pretty old, and the historical view, which is what we're going to talk about. The historical view is that, uh, I'll just introduce it, and then we'll go through it in a second, is that it started around the time of John soon, and then it is an unfolding of history. At first, they recognized there was something about Rome that was significant. Rome is significant here. Well, Rome fell in 476. Dante writes around 1300. As uh, he's writing, most of this book is about abuses of the papacy. That is what most of it is. And in veiled, in veiled poetry, he talks about uh, Pope Adrian. He talks about Pope Boniface VIII, who was the pope at the time he's writing this. He's writing about... Um, Pope Leo, the some number, I don't know which, and, 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 and not just that, but the archbishops, there's, there's murder, they're, they're selling uh, bishop offices, right? there's all this stuff that's going on, so as I read this, this is, this book is like, um, this book is to the Reformation, 
what um, Uncle Tom's Cabin is to the Civil War, if you think of it like that. This is this is this affects men like Wycliffe, John Haas, and uh, Luther, uh, even like just so many people in the Reformation. This book is instrumental. So I just want to read just a couple of of, of passages here, and I don't have my glasses. Anyway, we'll try to do this here. So I pardon pardon the the poetry here, but he says. Uh, He's talking about this chariot, and then and something's going to happen out of this chariot. He says, Methought then that the earth did yawn between both wheels, and I saw from it rise a dragon, who through the chariot upward fixed his tail. And a wasp, like a wasp that draws back its sting, he drew unto himself his tail to malign. He drew out from the floor and went on his way rejoicing. Um, let's see, and then I'm going to skip a couple of verses. So he's, we've got this dragon. To see if these, some of these things sound familiar to you. Transfigured thus on the holy edifice, and so he's talking about the papal headquarters in Rome, thrust forward head, heads on the parts of it, three on the pole, three heads, and then one on each corner. So we've got seven heads. The first three were horned like oxen, that means with two horns. But the four had one horn upon the forehead. So how many horns? 10. So have we heard anywhere the story? So he's got, he says the, the first three heads had horn like oxen with two. The other four had one each, right? So those are four plus six. Have we read anywhere about a dragon with seven heads and 10 horns. Yeah. It's Revelation. Dante is quoting Revelation. Understand, so I only read this to un, so that we can understand that the popular view as, as Dante is writing is that the papacy is fulfilling Revelation. And at the time it was gaining steam over premillennialism. So Louis de Alcazar is Catholic. And, and this view is gaining, he's got, in other words, he's got a motive. He needs a red herring to get people off of this viewpoint of his church. And so preterism is designed not as an interpretation, but as an explanation, right? That, yes? Do you have a structure something in Europe at this time. I'm, I'm trying to figure I, I think he was he was just a Jesuit priest. He's probably just like working in a monastery or I don't know I don't know anything about his background. There's like a little blurb about him. I mean, he's not a very influential person other than he wrote this. That this is what he's famous for. So I don't know anything about him beyond beyond this. But this is this is where preterism originates. Even though they were at one point dissolved by, by one of the popes, but they, they were considered the popes right hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yes, yes. So, so th there might have even been an added, you need to come up with this. <laughs> Make it happen. <laughs> um, says, uh, Revelation 1.9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island that is called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What we're going to get into is a little bit of chronology. Uh, one, and we have here um, 
a jumping point as he talks about where he's at. John was on Patmos. That's kind of the background picture there is, a, is actually Patmos. Um, and so there's a man by the name of Irenaeus who, who writes in the, the 100s. Um, he's born in 130. He says, had there been any need for his name, that is the name of the Antichrist, to be openly announced at the present time, it would have been stated by the one who saw the actual revelation, talking about the book, because it was not seen a long time ago, but almost in my own lifetime at the end of Domitian's reign. So, so he was talking about when John was on the island of Patmos getting this revelation. Domitian is emperor from 85 or 81 to 95 or 96 AD. That presents a problem for preterism because preterism says all of this is about the fall of Jerusalem, which happened when? 70 AD. Well, John can't likely write a prophecy about an event that happened 25 years earlier. That's a major problem, right? So, uh, so there's an explanation. The preterists still exist, so they are aware of this problem. And I'm going to share with you the problem, and I'm going to explain how their explanation doesn't quite work. Uh, and they do state something true, and that is that it says, for it was seen. It here is a word, it, and Greek pronouns work this way. Masculine is it's very difficult, except by context, to distinguish between a masculine and a neuter. So it and he are the same thing, right? To read it, unless you have a context. So they say, uh, so their explanation here is that he was seen very recently. In other words, the revelation was given prior to, to 70 AD because it's about the fall of Jerusalem, but John was here later. He lived a lot longer and he could have explained things. Uh, and so, so, but the revelation is still very old. Right? And so it's still about the fall of Jerusalem. Several problems with that. Um, and, and that is to look at the grammar. There's a reason why this is universally translated the way it's translated. Um, because we can tell from it that there's a difference between the one who saw and the thing that was seen. Right? The grammar is quite clear. John saw, but the revelation was seen. Right? That's the way the grammar works. The, the, when it talks about it was seen, it refers back to the next thing in the context, which is the revelation, not John. Um, Irenaeus' context actually denies, even if, even if we said, okay, let's, let's give that grammar point here. Let's not argue about grammar, right? We'll take Paul's advice and not wrangle over words. Irenaeus' context denies the fact of all of this. What does Irenaeus say in the subject matter? He's saying, listen, this antichrist, this dragon, this whatever this is, if it, it, John lived not too long ago, and uh, we, could, we could have this figured out for us because John was here. He could have explained it. State this way. Irenaeus was born to a Christian family in a city of Smyrna. He was raised in the church. We've talked about Smyrna. Who was the bishop of Smyrna? We've said his name a couple of times, or an elder. He was an elder in the church of Smyrna. Polycarp. Who is Polycarp? He was a disciple of John. Who knows, or who has access to any question he wants about John and about the giving of this revelation and about all these things? 
Irenaeus has a direct line. He's not going to be wrong. You know, he's, he's as good of a witness as we can get. And so when Irenaeus writes this, he's saying, John was there to explain what this all meant. If it was about the fall of Jerusalem, John would have explained it. But when Irenaeus writes this in the 100s, he's saying, we don't know what this means yet. It's not about the fall of Jerusalem. Whatever this thing is, it's about something that's coming. Because John didn't say it was about the fall of Jerusalem. He had 25 years <laughs> between the fall of Jerusalem and, and, and when he died, just before my lifetime, to explain this, and he never did. That's why we don't have it till 1614. Because prior to then, no reasonable person would have come up with this idea. There's, you know, if Irenaeus would have come up with an idea of the fall of Jerusalem, he would have been laughed off the face of the earth. It would have been ridiculous to anybody. So we're going to briefly look at the historical here. So uh, we do have something to explain. There are difficulties with all of these, right? Uh, but the, the basic idea of it is that it uh, is the unfolding of historical events that are significant to the church. It's not a history book. It says nothing about the Mayans or the Chinese because they're not into the development of Christianity. They're, they're, they're not vital to the development of the world. So, so this is not a history book. This is, this is not gonna be about um, uh, the stock market crash. This is not gonna be about things that you and I think are really important. World War II, it's important to you and I, but in the, in the, 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 the broad scope of events of world history, Hitler appears and he disappears. He doesn't affect the church. He's not that significant to God. He's just like a, right? there's so many more things that are influencing and affecting the church. And that's what this is about. To understand chapter one, verse one, and that concept of soon shall take place. I want to look then first at chapter one, verse 19, and we're going to marry these two verses together. It says, right there for the things that you have seen, the things that are and the things that shall soon take place after this. I think from this, we can kind of clearly see that there is a progression. Things which have been, things which are, and the things which shall be. With that in mind, I want to go back to the idea of Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show him, the servants, uh, his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. In English grammar, I would not write this this way, but it's possible that things in different languages have, they, they look at things differently. For example, when I went to a different country and, and lived in Ukraine, I found out that near means something different because they walk, right? So near to me, I'm like, oh, that's not too far away. Well, if you walk everywhere, near is a lot closer and far, far happens a lot sooner right? Uh, just everything is, things are different spatially, right? They get in a bus, we get on a bus. So everything is different. So, so to try to make a different language operate by your rules is, is a little foolhardy. And I think a good explanation, because we have some things that can't be, right? I think uh, Sherlock Holmes had, a, and I'm, I'll misquote it, but he said, uh, he was talking to Watson, and he said, when you, Watson's like, how do you, how do you know this is true? And he says, well, when you eliminate the things that are impossible, whatever's left, no matter how improbable, is the truth. 
Um, and that, that's kind of what we have here. There's some difficulties even with any of these, but, but if we eliminate the ones that can't be true, premillennialism can't be true because it changes who Christ is. Uh, preterism can't be true because historically you can't prophesy an event that happened 25 years earlier. And so we're left with a viewpoint. Now, there might be another viewpoint out there that I haven't heard, and I'm welcome to hear that. But until then, I've got to work with what I've got. Uh, there is difficulty in the historical view, and, and one of them is this verse. But I think a natural explanation is that this is the things that will soon start to take place. That's the concept. It doesn't say that. I'm not, I'm not adding words to the Bible. But as understanding a concept, that we see the things which have been, the things which are, the things will shortly take place, right? That, that John is, is looking at view things in 96 AD. He doesn't understand any of it, but it's going to soon start to take place. And we will see that this is true. It'll start to take place within a couple of years after this. Yes. In the reference to the prayers, yes. you mentioned major doctrinal switch. Yes. Yeah. How would you address the question of the hope that we have in the return of Christ? Because the conclusion is that he's already come. Right. For them. Yes. That seems to be a main... I suppose that, that's true. I, I, I was referencing more in terms of like deity. No, you're, you're, I'm not saying there's no effect. When you get something wrong, you will affect something. Right. If you were uh, so that's kind of where we started out. This whole thing was talking about your hope in something. Uh, if, you, if, if you're trying to get prepared for an event that that the references that you're using are that's not what it's about, then you're going to be prepared for the wrong event. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going to affect you. Uh, I'm, I'm, and so I, I do think if you are if, if you don't understand, you know, if this is about something that's going to this this really bad thing is going to happen and you're like, man, no, it already happened. You're not going to be ready. Right. You're going to be it's going to be like Matthew, chapter 25, where he talks about the people that that their candles, <laughs> they didn't have enough oil because they weren't prepared. They, they kind of died out a little too soon. It will affect you. Um, but it, uh, in terms of changing the nature of 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 Christ or. Uh, salvation doctrine. I don't see any direct implication. That's all I was, that's all I was limiting that to. Um, I want to talk about the inspiration of it. So uh, we are past kind of the, the introduction, why we're going to go through uh, the way we are going through. When we do come up with stuff that I don't understand, uh, in fact, all throughout here, I'm going to tell you, this is, this is kind of conjecture. This looks like this. I don't make any dogmatic statements about this has to be the only way, right? We're trying to do the best we can. It's prophecy. It's difficult. Um, so, so this is one area where I don't, <laughs> I, I tread lightly. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Christ, uh, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We've talked about the seven spirits in our sermon series. I think this is a reference to the angels uh, that he's going that we're going to see throughout Revelation, not to the Holy Spirit, um, but uh, those angels that are going to open those seals and 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 blow the trumpet. Actually, he opens the seals, uh, pour out the bowls, and 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 blow the trumpets. I think that's the reference here, um, but that's not the vital part of this. Um, I want a, a couple of things. This is John the Apostle. It sounds odd that we would have to say that, right? That this is John the Apostle. Everyone just accepts this is John the Apostle. No, they, they don't. Um, some people point to Second John chapter one, verse one, 
and it says the elder. Now, this is obviously John, the elder to the elect lady and her children. So there's a theory that this is actually written much later. Some people have the idea that it's written much earlier. This is written much later. And these are higher critics. And that, that this, there's an elder of a church whose name was John. That's different from the apostle John. It's odd. I know. I just, we just kind of want to address it. This all goes up in a puff of smoke in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. This is clearly Peter. Um, no one argues that this is a different Peter. Uh, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So apparently when the apostles got older and didn't feel like traveling all over the world, you know, their knees are getting a little achy. They settled down in one congregation and became an elder in that congregation to prepare kind of like the age of apostles is coming to a close. We're kind of training elders now. And that was, I think, the natural explanation. Just very quick. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. We are going to see that he was in the spirit. These things do not happen, actually, in terms of what the vision is. It is a vision. John does not go to heaven and see green rainbows. Right? Uh, he doesn't see a lamb walking around opening seals. Right? That, that, that was a vision. These did not happen. A lot of people start talking about the book of Revelation like this was an actual thing. John was on the island of Patmos. He never left the island of Patmos. He saw a vision there. <laughs> and so some people start talking about John going up to heaven. No, he, he was here. He tells us where he was and how he got this revelation. And we just want to keep that in mind as we go through the book. Uh, next, we'll talk about the setting. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom, the patient endurance that is in Jesus was on the island called Patmos, right? We want to talk about a little bit about why it is structured the way it is structured. So this is where he was in the circle is the island. You see the, the seven churches. How does he get a letter? Now he's in exile under a Roman empire. Oops, there we go. Uh, how does he get an, a book that has, if, if the historical viewpoint is correct, it's about the fall of Rome part of it. How does he get a book that might be include stuff about Rome off of an island where they're reading his mail? How do you do that? You code it. Thank you. He's read my notes. You code it so they don't understand it, right? Um, it, it is full of symbolism from Daniel, from Ezekiel, from Zechariah, from Isaiah. It, it's, it's Old Testament. It's simple stuff that elders, who are probably still many of them are Jewish, would recognize. Um, but as a 85, 90-year-old man, if you're a Roman, you're not, you don't know any of this. It kind of looks like the ramblings of a guy who's seen a lot and he's now senile. Right? This is not the genius of John, by the way. This is the genius of Christ who gives him the revelation. John doesn't know what he's doing. He's writing. Write this. Okay, I'm writing um, so, so that is how this, uh, this gets off and gets spread out to churches. Um, and so I think this is awesome. So I want to talk about the purpose of it every week when we go through these, I don't want to just say, well, this means this and that's exciting. Let's go. Uh, we want to end with something valuable, uh, something that means something to us as we leave here that cause you've heard this phrase. Well, I've seen the last page and we win in the end. You ever heard that? 
And I know what that's for. Here's a problem with that statement. It is not scriptural. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He did not say, blessed are those who read the last phrase, the last page, and know that we win in the end. These things are valuable. Now, maybe if, if you are preparing for an event that he's predicting, and it, it might have more value to you than to me, because I'm looking back in history, but these things are valuable. And they're valuable for two things, um, probably more than that. First of all, to prepare Christians, like we talked about. We're preparing people. Um, so that's the first thing for events that are going to happen. Well, what happens if the events already occurred? How, what's the value for me is for us to go back and be awed by the fact that God saw these things coming and he is in control. The world in which we live in right now, whether or not these things are about us or not, we feel insecure. Do you not feel insecure in a world around you? And God goes, yeah, I've seen all this coming. When, when this event was going to happen, I told them, yeah, you get ready. It's coming. I'm going to see you through it. You're going to be out on the other side. And yes, we win in the end. But until then, I see this coming. The things in our world and around us, God has seen coming. And I want you to leave with that. If you leave with nothing here and you go, what was primo? I forget. Understand, God knows all of the future. Christ did not come to fix our politics. Our politics since Rome were hopelessly broken. That's not a new story. God says, I didn't come for that. I didn't come not for a thousand years to fix politics and then let it go back, whatever. I came for a spiritual kingdom I'm getting you ready now. So we're going to close with that. And then next week, we'll start getting into the actual material.